think that as researchers, we're, we're really being compelled to use storytelling in more creative ways of presenting data because clients are demanding it. I think that the makeup and demographic of research buyers is changing pretty dramatically. And as a society, I think that the, the ways that we process information has changed pretty dramatically. Hey, everyone. I'm David Paul. And in this episode, my co-host Paul Kirch and I are talking with Kristen Luck. With over 20 years of experience as a marketing measurement and growth hacking expert, Kristen's consulting practice, Luck Collective, focuses on non-traditional growth strategies. She's a serial entrepreneur and a globetrotting keynote speaker on marketing, branding, storytelling, startups, and innovation. Kristen is also the founder of Women in Research, a global nonprofit that facilitates education, entrepreneurship, and other career development for women in the market research industry. Our conversation focuses on the hot topic of storytelling in market research, both in marketing to consumers and in market research reporting. We also touch on brands that are doing a standout job of engaging consumers, and we explore the state of women and diversity overall in market research. Conversations with Kristen are always packed with value, and this one is certainly no exception. So check it out. Well, hey, Kristen, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Our pleasure. For the handful of people listening who may not know you or what you're up to these days, tell us a little bit about what's happening with the Luck Collective. Sure. So Luck Collective is my growth strategy practice. I work with firms who are either struggling to grow. So in many cases, I'm doing turnarounds, helping inspire new growth in firms that are stagnating or struggling in some ways. Or I'm working with early stage, in some cases, fast growing companies to figure out how to scale growth in the most effective ways possible and then drive eventually to an acquisition or M&A event. Kristen, we really appreciate you coming on and we're looking forward to this conversation. The research industry is one where sometimes slow moving, there's been a little bit of innovation that has really crept into the industry, which is exciting to see. But one of the things that I think is really prevalent in the industry is the idea of storytelling, but it's almost always been tied to the qualitative side of research. And I think a lot of researchers are getting better at tying storytelling into presenting results. But on the quant side, it's maybe not been used as much. So what are some opportunities or what are some things that are happening in the research industry that maybe excites you around the idea of story reporting or storytelling in terms of presenting data? Well, I think that as researchers, we're, we're really being compelled to use storytelling and more creative ways of presenting data because clients are demanding it. I think that the makeup and demographic of research buyers is changing pretty dramatically. And as a society, I think that the, the ways that we process information has changed pretty dramatically. Certainly when I started out in research, there weren't a whole lot of entertainment options. You could go to see a movie or watch a television show or read a magazine or a book. That was pretty much it. And I started out in, in research. I think my very first computer at, at Lieberman was a Mac Classic that took about 15 minutes to boot up. And really its only function was email. <laughs> there wasn't much online content versus today where you've got so many competing forms of entertainment and ways that information are delivered, particularly visually. And so I think as an industry, we're having to evolve, particularly our quantitative data reporting from something that was largely static and driven by, by data tables to focusing on more interactive ways of reporting and, and really challenging ourselves to, to move from, from just reporting numbers to actually reporting a story that thematically ties to the brand and, 
and to the, the research findings. And so I think that's the biggest challenge for, for quantitative researchers, I think, who might be a little more comfortable just sitting with the numbers and reporting exactly what the numbers are, are saying versus tying it to a larger strategy or a larger message for the brand. One of the pitfalls or one of the shortcomings of research these days is the fact that we've lost a little bit of credibility with some C-suite. Doesn't storytelling give us an opportunity to help our clients do a better job of selling the research internally? Absolutely. I can't even tell you how many meetings I went into earlier in my career where you'd be going into a boardroom at Warner Brothers or NBC and the minute the research team got announced or the part of the meeting came where it was time to present the research, you could kind of almost see the collective groan. And I know I went to one meeting, you'll probably love this story, where I was just getting ready to do a big data presentation. It was at Fox. I remember launching the first kind of couple pages of PowerPoint charts and the head of marketing kind of looked around and said, oh, you know, wake me up when the data is over, <laughs> uh, which is just the worst thing that you could hear as a researcher. But it was a really big wake up call to me that presenting data in the usual ways that might appeal to people that are a little more analytically driven or really love data tables, as a lot of researchers do, that just doesn't work for a whole lot of audiences. And when we present data in ways that are really mind-numbing or not interactive, then we lose that audience and it lessens the value of research in an organization overall. Well, at least they were forthright to you. I actually witnessed the CEO one time literally take his shoes off and his socks off and he started picking at his feet in the meeting. He had no interest what? in listening to what was being said. <laughs> yes, that was the most uncomfortable meeting I've ever sat in in my life. Hey, you know, apparently a pedicure was more important than your, <laughs> than your data presentation. Kristen, let me flip this a little bit to something that we've actually talked about in the past, and that's the notion of the importance of not only knowing what to put into a story, but also the value of knowing what to leave out. Um, so you're satisfying the target audience enough, but leaving them wanting more. And that relates, of course, to how marketers are communicating and telling stories and building narratives for their audience. But I think also on the, on the reporting side to what Paul was getting at, deciding what critical elements to put into reporting in order to deliver what needs to be understood understood, but also knowing what to leave out, not so much to leave them hanging and wanting more, but to, but to simply not overburden them with too many things and really focus them on, on the key results. So what are, what's been your experience there and what kind of advice and recommendations do you have around that? From my perspective, good storytelling has a, has a really good hook at the beginning to bring people in. And for me, I always try to use personal stories or personal narratives that I think will really resonate with my audience. And some people are really comfortable with that and other people aren't. So I would say if you're not comfortable, you know, divulging personal information or tying it to a personal story that you think will resonate with that audience, then, then figure out another strategy. I think there's two mistakes that I see people make a lot when it comes to storytelling. The first is I, I see folks not plan for the ending and the ending is where everything gets tied together. So understanding how your entire story is going to play out and how you're going to kind of link everything together at the end is really important. The other issue I see uh, or error that I see researchers make a lot is we just tend to get too much into the weeds. Not every data point is important and, and needs to be discussed at nauseum in, in a meeting. And so being really selective about, about what you share so that it, it does pique interest and drives a Q&A session at the end is super important from my perspective. So really planning the end in mind, working your way back, but also knowing which things you can glance over versus which things you really need to go deep on. Yeah, because I don't think there's anything worse than having a really great kickoff to a story. You kind of get the guts. The, the kickoff is really exciting. Everybody's excited about it and paying attention. And then you get to the, 
the guts of the research where you're explaining you know, how it links to the beginning, but then there's no end that, that ties everything together. And so if you don't have a good ending that ties everything together and links it with the intro, then it just sort of falls flat. The idea of presenting too much data to a client, I think, is sometimes the issue as well, because you think back to the old days when we used to print reams of paper to present crosstab reports that just would sit on someone's shelf for years. But I've seen some people that have really been creative about taking the data and really focusing on one or two key points and making that the focus of the presentation and then expanding from that. What are your thoughts on kind of really getting to the point where we can get a little bit more granular on how we report things? I guess the granularity just depends on the relevance to the research. I think that good research reports or presentations that I've seen focus on the key content and the key issues. And if they're not touching on a particular topic, it's likely because the base size isn't large enough or it just lacks relevance to the overall study. And I think the one of the reasons that researchers tend to over-prepare or to provide too much content is because we're getting used to ask, being asked tough questions in meetings. And so we want to have every piece of data available so that, you know, if we do get asked a question about something that has a base size of two, we can, we can answer that question, albeit, you know, it's completely lacking in relevance. So from my perspective, I think it is unreasonable to, to think that you're going to be able to go into a meeting and answer every question that someone has about every data point in the entire survey, but being prepared to talk about the things that are most relevant uh, and to also be prepared to talk about why, maybe why you're not covering specific subjects is, is an Im- important thing to prepare for as well. I want to take it just maybe in a little different direction because you are known as a growth hacking expert. And also you have this extensive research background. Are some things that maybe you've learned from growth hacking that have really kind of transformed the way you look at research and look at the way of working with clients? Um, well, you know, it's interesting because I work with different data sets. I'm looking, looking at different types of data than I did when I was doing primary research. I mean, I will, I will say that what is interesting to, or I guess the most interesting part of my growth strategy practice, and particularly because I tend to work with a lot of insights firms, is that as researchers, we're super adept at, at looking and, and translating data but researchers are also literally the worst at using data to tune their own business growth, which is fascinating to me. <laughs> and I don't know if it's just because we spend so much time looking at data all day that the last thing you want to do is, as a CEO is at the end of the day, look at the own data related to your business. And maybe that's why a lot of the CEOs that are running some of the largest research firms, research firms are not researchers by trade. They come from the business world or they come from a business background. They don't, they, they're not actually researchers themselves. But I do think that that has been some really kind of illuminating as I as I work with with insights firms to, to kind of determine the biggest opportunities for growth is really teaching people how to use that business data in really meaningful ways. Totally agree with that. I'm curious to ask you, Kristen, about, about an article I actually read today uh, on a website called FocusWire, where they cited an example of storytelling in the travel industry. Uh, in the article, they said stories are the emotional currency of travel. Uh, they're what people are looking for when they're searching for what to do. It's what they seek when they're in a place. And it's what they share while they're there and when they get home. And the article was using an example. They referenced a hotel company in Sri Lanka called 
Jetwing Hotels. And that hotel company has created an online magazine called Island Insider, where it has stories and sample itineraries and photos all about traveling in and around Sri Lanka. And there's only very subtle book now buttons and links uh, to try to then capture and convert those people, of course, into customers. So I thought that was a really interesting example of selling through stories. And I know we're both fans of Paul Smith's uh, Sell with a Story and his other books. And I'm curious about your thoughts on the ways companies are effectively using stories and narratives and those kinds of experiences to interact with their customers and really how in the research space, as we're crafting messaging and, and concepts and programs, we can take that kind of thing into account in order to help drive business for clients. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't think there's much debate anymore on the impact that, that stories can have in terms of influencing behavior or the, the, the activities or brands that really resonate with, with people. Well, I think some of the, the more interesting storytelling that I've seen brands use is just honestly through influencer and referral-based marketing, which I think is underutilized, particularly in the B2B space. I think when you look at some of the stats around that and realize you know, that, that people do what other people do and people are looking at social feedback and channels and watching these stories play out. Like if you look at Instagram stories, you know, like there's a couple of travel nomads that I follow on Instagram. And every time they post an Instagram story about what they're doing, which is highly visual, it, it really drags me in. And I'm like dying to find out like what, what country are they in or what hotel are they going to? And again, I see that sort of that almost like contagious posting or I don't want to call it voyeurism per se, but that desire to find out like, hey, what are these successful people or what are these adventurous people doing that's different than what I'm doing? And what can I learn from it? I don't see enough of that in research and I don't see enough of it in, in the B2B world for sure. And it's interesting because I almost feel like, and I hear this a lot from folks like, oh, well, I don't have anything interesting to share. Or, I don't have any interesting perspectives to talk about. And I don't think that's true. I think there's just not a whole lot of thoughtfulness put behind it. Yeah, well, we do hear that certainly a lot in B2B, right? There's that preconception that a lot of B2B just isn't sexy. It isn't interesting. There's nothing to really build a story or a narrative around. Putting on a spot, if, if you happen to have one or two in mind, are there any B2B brands that either you've worked with or that you've admired how they how they interact and engage with their customers and prospective customers through story and narrative? One that comes to mind is Rackspace. Rackspace is a global kind of hosting provider. And if you've ever worked with Rackspace before, they sort of advertise themselves as having this fanatical customer support. And if you've ever worked with Rackspace and then uh, decided to move off to a less expensive hosting provider, you would understand why, why you would want to go back to Rackspace as quickly as possible. The way that they market themselves and the way they interact with their customers, how they treat their customers, all the different incentives they have for kind of working with them to evangelize their brand is really unique and special. And I feel like the interactions that they have with their customers are, are really ex exceptional. How they, how they market and position themselves is really different. Because you think of like a hosting provider, that's not the most sexy, glamorous business that would drive people to talk about it because their service is so good and because they're so attentive and they're, they're so on top of their B2B sales and marketing channels. I think they just provide a really exceptional experience that people want to talk about. When you look at like the referral metrics, and this is why I go back to referral-based marketing and how it's not used enough, particularly in B2B, people are four times more likely to buy when they're referred by a friend or a work colleague. If you look at like the lifetime values for referral customers are 16% higher than non-referral. 
just something that we don't spend enough time on. And I, for me personally, I think those are some of the most powerful stories. If you've had a really great experience with a brand or a product and you go out and evangelize it, that's going to be 10 times more impactful. If you hear about that from a friend than reading an ad online or just doing a web search on your own. So I think it, those can be really powerful channels, particularly for storytelling. Are you familiar with the file transfer service WeTransfer? I am, yeah. Have you taken a look at any of the storytelling-based marketing that they do with the little mini movies that they make and things I like that? I haven't. No, okay. I haven't. I think you'll really like it. Maybe the ultimate of unsexy things to market is file but- transfer. <laughs> Um, Which would be less sexy, website hosting or file transfers? They do an amazing job of crafting these stories that, and if you just look them up on YouTube, you know, they're two and a half, three minutes long, but they weave together these really, really interesting stories that then feed right into the brand. So I love that you just mentioned the use of YouTube because that that's another channel that is great for storytelling that I think is really underutilized by B2B marketers, like just the use of video and video stories. It's just not something that B2B uses as much as I think they could in YouTube and things like Instagram stories. And you can do video now on Twitter, on Facebook, on LinkedIn. It just is not used as, as much as it should be. And there's nothing I think that resonates as much as a video story. I couldn't agree more. We, yesterday, I interviewed Matt Ruby from Vuza.com. And, and they have a really interesting premise around the idea that they create these funny videos to help companies market themselves. But one of the things that he was talking about is storytelling. We were talking about the idea that the stories always have a beginning, a middle, and an end. I think a lot of times researchers, they've got this fixed data. They sometimes miss those elements in a storytelling piece. But I'm wondering if there's some other things that you look for in storytelling that really drive a more compelling message. I think the personalization is a big piece of it. And like I said, I think that there's some folks that are really uncomfortable with personalizing stories. And that, that to me, one of the most powerful components of my storytelling is is being able to personalize. I think that's a big piece of it for sure. And particularly as it relates to, to video stories, you're watching a video that where someone's really passionate or really engaged or has a you know really strong perspective on something, that's going to resonate a lot more than just kind of this rote explanation of how a product or a service works. When it comes to engagement, we obviously want to drive a conversation. If we're doing video, it's obviously one-sided. But are there some things that we can do to maybe try and focus on driving engagement, keep people more interested in what we're doing? Humor is one piece, but presenting data and research, I don't think humor necessarily has its place. But are there some other things we can do to maybe get an emotional connection or emotional tie? One of the ways that I've seen storytelling work really well in a presentation where you're trying to elicit emotion or you know some kind of deeper feedback, and this is this isn't to give a pitch to Vox Potney because they are one of my advisory clients and I drink the Kool-Aid around video and storytelling. I think it's, I think it's really important, but to be able to, to show actual consumer feedback in the moment, how they feel about a brand, a product, a service, what their experience has been, whether they love it or hate it, being able to see people's facial expressions and telling an actual client about their experience with their brand. Gosh, you know, I haven't seen much that's more powerful than that in a, in a data presentation. And so I think, I think allowing brands to see real consumer stories and real consumer feedback is is something that's really powerful that you know we have access to as researchers in a way that we we haven't had before. Yeah. Granted, they are one of your advisory clients, but it's also really interesting to see what they're doing in the space and the way video is being used to allow research respondents to be able to tell their stories in a way that you can not only hear what they're saying, but you can take advantage of facial expressions and body language and whichever product you choose to use aside. Um, I definitely think that video-based 
text-based verbatims, video-based open-ends in research along the lines of qualitative research is so powerful. David, I think you uncovered this years ago when you first launched Dialsmith about the ability to see that kind of in-the-moment feedback from from respondents, from from live live you know viewing sessions or polling sessions, you know the ability to kind of look at people's reactions in the moment is is really powerful, and I think it gets at consumer insights in a way that you can't get to with a traditional kind of text based quantitative questionnaire. Totally agree. Kristen, no conversation with you would be complete if we also didn't talk about Wire and uh, how things are going with that organization these days. If I'm correct, did you guys, have you guys just recently crossed the 10-year mark with Wire? We did, yeah. Uh, it was 10 years for women in research last year, so we had our 10th year anniversary. We celebrated that at SMR Congress in the fall, so we had a yeah. big lunch in there. We had, like, gosh, standing room only. It was, a, it was a crazy, crazy event. But yeah, it's hard to believe that it's been 10 years. We've got over 7,000 members in our community globally now. So it's been, it's been a wild ride and we only seem to be growing and gaining more traction every year. Yeah. So over the 10 years, what are you seeing as the, the biggest positive changes that, are, that you're happy about? And where are you seeing as the, the biggest areas that are still in need of attention related to women in research? It's interesting because we did a study five years ago where we kind of looked at the progression of women in the industry. Because one of the things that I had sort of noticed, and this was really the impetus behind starting Women in Research back in 2007 when I did, was that in the very early stages of my career, I worked almost exclusively with women. And women traditionally have sort of made up the bulk of researchers in market research. And then what I noticed as I got into the more senior and executive levels of my career, I've worked almost exclusively with men. And so it brought up the question, what's happening? Where are all the women going? <laughs> Why aren't they making it to these more senior level stages? Is it a pipeline problem? Is it an understanding of how to progress in your career? Like what are the barriers that are holding us back? And so well, a lot of what Wire's been about is creating opportunities for networking and collaboration between women and also providing them with examples of women that are in executive level positions and C-level positions running their own businesses so they understand the activities that are necessary in order to move into those roles. But it's kind of segueing back to the research study we conducted. We did a repeat of that study this last year. And unfortunately, we're just not making fast enough progress in terms of advancing women's role in the C-suite. If we continue at the same pace, I'll be retired and likely dead before we'll have parity in the market research industry. There's a number of different initiatives that we have going on with WIRE, but I think the one thing that I am the most proud of is just that we've been able to raise it as a real issue and to create awareness around it. Five years ago, 10 years ago, it would not be unusual to go to a conference and have most of the speakers as male and have all male panels and no one would say anything. Mm -hmm. These days, God forbid you put an all male panel on stage, I think you'd get scalped alive. There's definitely a sea change going on and, and folks are aware of the fact that, hey, not only do we need to have more women's voices and more diverse voices in the C-suite, but that diversity really drives innovation. It drives business growth. There have been tons of studies that touch on the benefits of diversity. And when I say diversity, I don't mean just women. Mm -hmm. I mean, people of color, um, people of different backgrounds. I do think that that's kind of a common misnomer when it comes to women in research is that we're here to promote diversity. We're not here to promote a female-only perspective. Just like I wouldn't want to see an all-male panel on stage, I also wouldn't want to see an all-female panel. 
when we say diverse perspectives, we mean that. Kristen, what are some things that can be done to help move that forward? You mentioned awareness being a key element, but are there some things that you see happening or maybe some things that can be fostered to move that? Yeah, for sure. I think that the one thing to realize is in yourself is that we all have our own unconscious biases, myself included. Somebody asked me to recommend five speakers for a conference. I really have to think hard about who I'm going to recommend because my first instinct is to recommend every single woman that I know. (laughs) We just tend to surround ourselves with people that are the most like ourselves, myself included. Most of the women in my immediate network are white females. I've really had to work to expand my network and to ensure that when I am asked to make recommendations or I'm going to interview people or post a job description, that I'm using diverse channels to attract people, that I'm going through my networks and asking for referrals so that I am getting people that are different than than myself. And so honestly, I think just coming from a place of humility and saying, hey, I do suffer from unconscious bias as we all do. and, And what can I do to ensure that I am surrounding myself with diverse perspectives? Because one of the things I see a lot when people are going out and hiring or posting job descriptions or looking for conference speakers is like, well, I I asked around and nobody applied or I posted a description and only white males applied because you went out through your normal networks. That might consist primarily of white males. So it is just about broadening our, our networks and making sure that we're being as inclusive as possible in our business processes. Kristen, we really appreciate you coming on. And I want to pay a special thanks to David Paul, who co-hosted this with us today. This has been a great initiative. But Kristen, can you tell people how they can learn more about you and connect with you? You can learn more about my growth strategy practice on my website. It's luckcollective.com. I'm also super active on Twitter and LinkedIn. And you can obviously find me on LinkedIn under my name. My Twitter handle's at Kristen Luck. And for anyone that wants to learn more about women in research, you can look up that organization at womeninresearch.org. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Thanks again to Kristen Luck and my co-host for this episode, Paul Kirch. You can explore the Audible Insights podcast at insightsassociation.org forward slash audible dash insights and by searching Audible Insights on iTunes and Google Play.